Rachel, some super exciting news about the field of genetics came out very recently. Ooh, what happened? Two women, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, received the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for discovering CRISPR. Wow, this is amazing to see, like, for the first time, two women splitting the prize. This has never happened before. And, of course, as our listeners know, we're super excited about CRISPR, so it's great to see these researchers getting this kind of recognition for their groundbreaking work, especially so quickly. I mean, I I don't know if you remember when, like, where were you when CRISPR first started out, Emma? I think I was, at some point, like, towards the beginning of college I don't really think I heard too much about it towards my junior senior year yeah I mean I was just also I was an undergraduate and they were just starting to teach it in the classes I think yes when I was a junior um, and a senior and I even got to use it like a little bit in the lab in my last year um, whoa yeah but it's become a lot more common now you know I, I think a ton of people use CRISPR it's very widespread Before we jump into this year's winners and talk about what CRISPR is, we thought it'd be fun to talk about how the Nobel Prizes originated. You've probably heard of Nobel Prizes being given out every year, but this Nobel Prize is one of the most coveted award in science, literature, and humanitarian work. But how did it all start? Well, you may have heard that Alfred Nobel founded the Nobel Prizes. Alfred was born in 1833 in Stockholm, Sweden, but his family moved around a little bit while he was a child, and he ended up living for some time in Russia before they moved back to Sweden. Alfred's parents encouraged their children's scholarly pursuits with private tutors and by sending them to the best boarding schools. However, Alfred's father was disappointed that he took such interest in poetry and wished he would focus more on chemistry. As someone who graduated with an English major and a genetics major, I'm a true believer you can do both. But apparently, (laughs) Alfred's father was a little antiquated in his thinking. (laughs) Well, even though Alfred was interested in poetry, this didn't really stop him from excelling in chemistry. In fact, his interest in the explosive nitroglycerin eventually led him to invent dynamite. Pretty impressive. What? I didn't know that. That's fascinating. (laughs) I know. I feel like they should have a cat like a tagline at the Nobel Prize be like your work is dynamite like a <laughs> kind of echo back to Alfred seriously they are missing a big um, promotional opportunity there <laughs> <laughs> so Alfred was constantly inventing new tools he had 355 patents at the time of his death in 1896 With all these inventions going on, I'm sure you can guess that Alfred Nobel had accumulated quite a bit of wealth by the time of his death 31.5 million Swedish crowns, to be precise. <laughs> but Alfred had no family or children of his own, so instead of leaving his fortune to relatives, he established the Nobel Prizes in physics, chemistry, physiology or medicine, and literature, which are awarded in Stockholm, Sweden. Now, his relatives weren't too happy about this, and the disagreements over what should happen with his fortune are actually the reason why there was a four-year gap between Alfred's death in 1896 and 1901 when the first prizes were awarded. And of course, you've also probably heard of the Nobel Peace Prize, which is awarded in Oslo, Norway. This was also Alfred's doing, and many speculate that it was inspired by Bertha von Stuttner. 
Bertha worked as Alfred's secretary for a time and remained a lifelong friend and pen pal. She was very involved in the peace movement and wrote a book called Lay Down Your Arms. So now that we know about the origins of the Nobel Prize, let's get back into the prizes that were awarded this year for chemistry. For those of you unfamiliar with CRISPR, it is a fascinating technology that took the world of biology by storm when it was first applied in biology in 2011. CRISPR stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats, and this is a system from bacteria that can be used to edit DNA. It's like a Swiss army knife in that it has many applications like deleting DNA sequences, moving DNA sequences, overexpressing DNA sequences, and even adding DNA sequences. And this system was originally used in bacteria as kind of a institutional memory for bacteria to remember things that it had come in contact with. So that's why we can kind of utilize it today to go and find different things in the cell and get rid of them. I think it's important to remember that CRISPR came from bacteria and that, you know, we can we can find these useful tools in unexpected places, right? I'm sure those microbiologists that were studying um, these strange sequences that were repeated, like, had no idea that it could ever be this big. For sure. And a lot of the original CRISPR research came... I think in the 1980s and 1990s and just little pieces of the puzzle came together and it wasn't until 2011 when finally we realized oh we can use this to harness the power and edit dna um so jennifer Doudna and emmanuel charpentier were the first um people to apply this technology in editing sequences in mammalian cells but you know it's it's hard to just pick two people with these nobel prizes because there's so much like foundational work that that goes into it yeah i know that people in the science field were definitely wondering they figured the nobel prize would be awarded for crispr at some point but they weren't exactly sure who would get the nobel prize and it's been a topic of wide speculation you may have heard of CRISPR controversially in the news when, when a Chinese researcher used CRISPR to edit two babies, or how people speculate that CRISPR could be used to create designer babies, or how a researcher is trying to use CRISPR to resurrect the woolly mammoths. So it's really all over the boards. <laughs> we've talked uh, extensively about CRISPR on this podcast, and we've actually hit on several of these topics, like the CRISPR babies and um, designer babies through the Genetics Dating app. So definitely check out those episodes if you want to hear more about CRISPR. We've also talked extensively about the ethics underlying CRISPR, because if you can change someone's DNA code, then that can affect future generations for good or for ill. It's a serious thing to think about editing someone's germline, which means their sperm or eggs, especially because future generations don't really have a say in this editing. You, as the future parent, are making that decision for them. Shifting back to the technology itself, CRISPR works like a dog that can sniff out certain compounds. With bomb dogs or fruit dogs in the airport, yes, I have been pulled aside by a fruit dog for having an apple in my bag. They do exist. Are you serious? I bring fruit on planes all the time. I was given the apple on the plane, brought it through customs, and did not make it through, even though I didn't even bring it on the plane. But these bomb dogs or fruit dogs, they learn what they're looking for by you showing it to them and letting them smell it, in the case of bombs or fruit. In the case of CRISPR, it works similarly in that there's a molecule called a guide RNA that helps guide the enzyme to the place in the genome where you want that enzyme to go and cut. 
So in an ideal world, this guide RNA molecule targets only one place in the genome and is very specific. However, there are sometimes off-target effects with CRISPR where it can target multiple places in the genome, even though the guide RNA is only specific for that one place. This is likely why you hear people being excited about CRISPR, but also cautiously optimistic because there are still many nuances of the technology that need to be fleshed out before it's able to be used for human gene editing. So could an off-target be like a bomb dog, a fruit bomb dog, or a fruit dog smelling out a vegetable? Potentially. <laughs> Maybe they want them to do that because the vegetables are just dangerous. Um, so we talk a lot about CRISPR in research, but CRISPR also has other important applications like helping to treat cancers and other diseases. If scientists can repair a mutation that's causing a disease using CRISPR, that could completely revolutionize how diseases are treated. Currently, there's actually a clinical trial using CRISPR to try to eradicate sickle cell disease. Getting back to the Nobel Prize, this is exciting for many reasons. First, as we mentioned earlier, a Nobel Prize has never been shared by two women, so this is a landmark achievement for women in STEM fields. Second, most Nobel Prizes are awarded for technologies that have been around for a while. CRISPR has only been around as a technology for less than 10 years. This speaks to how groundbreaking CRISPR is. Like I mentioned earlier, we can speak to how um, CRISPR is an extremely useful technology because many labs are at our universities actually use it. In fact, I've used it in my own research to make a disease model for Alexander disease, which I talked about in the first episode, but I'll just give a quick recap now. <laughs> so Alexander disease is a neurodegenerative disease caused by point mutations in the GFAP gene, and this gene is expressed in the brain. So the normal GFAP protein forms this beautiful network of thin filaments that stretches throughout the cells almost like a spider web, and it helps to organize the cell space. When it's mutated, however, the GFAP protein forms large clumps that get in the way, they squish and damage cellular structures, and they interfere with important cell functions. So we use patient cells to develop a human brain cell model for Alexander disease so that we could study this disorder in a dish, you know, because we're pretty limited with, um, we can't go in and, and use and take biopsies from living patients, obviously. But we had these cells from patients that were brain cells, but we didn't have a control or normal cells to compare them to. This is where CRISPR came in big time for us. In the lab, we were able to correct the Alexander disease-causing mutation in GFAP and in those patient cells that we were growing on a dish. And voila, we had our healthy controls. So you basically went in and said, hey, there's this mutation in GFAP, and you eliminated it using CRISPR, and then you can compare those cells with the normal GFAP to the mutated GFAP. Exactly. We've talked before on this podcast about how important controls are. So if we see something strange in the mutant cells, we're not sure. That could be just you know something I'm doing in my handling of them. So it's so important to have this normal control. CRISPR has also made it much easier to make animal models. We've talked a decent amount on the podcast how if you're going to try any sort of treatment, you have to have an animal model first to make sure that it's going to be okay in humans and be able to control for that as much as you can. The old way of making animal models did not include the CRISPR enzyme. So you were just hoping DNA would incorporate into the genome. 
which is a very rare event that researchers had to use clever tricks to sort through all the failures. But with CRISPR, you can make a cut exactly where you need to make that change, vastly increasing your odds. And this is what we see with what Rachel's done in the lab with Alexander disease, making a very specific cut. And, you know, people have just kept building off this CRISPR technology. Um, You know, I think the classic scenario that we think of is going to a place in the genome and making that cut so you can change the genetic code. But there's a lot of other powerful things that you can do by guiding different kinds of enzymes that don't just cut, but maybe they turn on or turn off genes um, by modifying the DNA instead of just cutting it. Um, So it'll be really interesting to see where this technology goes in the next 10 years. 